I hope you all were encouraged from last week's service. Uh, I know I was, my installation service. Um, not only in the various aspects of worship, like singing. By the way, on the singing, uh, there were reports that some were so shocked at uh, the volume at, with which we sing that they, they requested that uh, next time we wouldn't sing so loud. <laughs> Um, and I think I, I know the sweet lady who mentioned something like that, and I don't think she doesn't like singing. She definitely likes singing. What she's not used to is the, the volume with which we sing. And there I think we really should be encouraged. Because I imagine in the end times gathering where we gather to worship Jesus around his throne, that our vocal cords will fully be loosed. And our ears will have greater capacity to take in the very praises of God at a great volume. Uh, and also, in light of Colossians, you know, where Paul encourages us to sing, uh, and we looked at that briefly, I think there it's evidence that hopefully you guys, by the Spirit, are putting into practice the very things that are coming out of the Word. So be encouraged there. And then, of course, the preaching was very encouraging, not only as Mark preached uh, to me, but he preached to the whole entire church. Uh, and so there, what was exciting for me was really to have us together learn to move towards Christ's likeness. It wasn't a sermon just for me. It was a sermon for us, really as a family, as we pursue Jesus Christ and learn to love him more. Uh, so I pray that you all were encouraged. <clears throat> um, and now today we return back to the series that we are finishing. And here we find ourselves at the last, at least in this expositional series, in the book of Colossians chapter 4. So go ahead and turn there. Colossians chapter 4. If you're using the pew Bibles in front of you, it's on page 985. 985. If the return of Jesus was imminent soon, how would that change the way you live today? Really? If the return were imminent, how would that change the way you live today? Or you could put it this way, if you knew you were going to die soon, how would that change the way you live? How would that change the way you relate with people? Would you actually say what you're thinking? Or would you purpose yourself to actually think about what you ought to say with the limited amount of time you have? How would we as a community interact if we knew that life we're not eternal. As we know, death hangs over us all. It's only a matter of time before we will have to say goodbye to loved ones, parents, children. How would that affect the way you live? The, effect that we as a, the, the way that we as a church live our life together? I think these, these questions all come up in the, the rest of the section that we look at today from, from Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 to 18, we have really Paul's final encouragements to the church. And the church he was writing to, they were going through various issues. There were false teachers who were springing up saying, look, okay, you may be Christians and you may claim to have a full life in Christ, but really no, you actually have to add other things to your worship, whether it be certain festivals or a certain aesthetic aesthetic. Uh, lifestyle, you know, refrain from this, refrain from this. 
And so here, as the Colossian Christians are coming to close this letter here, Paul reminds them that they are to persevere in light, really, of the return of Jesus Christ. And the return of the Supreme King as he establishes his kingdom here on earth actually affects the daily stuff of life together. And we're going to go ahead and read that there. Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 to 18. This is what he says. Now he speaks to the whole entire church. He says in verse 2, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. From this passage, we see that the Christian life is to be a persevering life. And that we as a people are to be a persevering people. Paul, after all here, he gives the final imperatives or commands regarding certain things. And just in the the section immediately before the section we're reading today, he was talking about domestic responsibilities and relationships and how they were reciprocal responsibilities and relationships. Now he turns towards addressing the whole entire church community. That's his focus here, how they as a church should be persevering. And as he says, and this is point number one if you're taking notes, the church, Christians, are to persevere in praying. We are to persevere in praying. This is found in verses 2 to 4. I don't know if you guys remember, but the book actually opens up in prayer, as many of Paul's epistles do. And just as the subject of prayer opens the book, so it closes the book. So let's go ahead and look at the beginning. Look at Colossians 1, verse 9. He says there, we have not ceased to pray for you. It's really encouraging, right? This church, Paul had never met. He didn't know them personally apart from Epaphras. Epaphras was the Colossian who went to the Apostle Paul, who we think was in Ephesus at the time. And there Paul says, we pray for you. And then now here at the close, 
Paul the Apostle calls them to pray too, steadfastly or without ceasing. So some of us, now the greatest occasions that call for prayer in our own life might be when you are about to eat your food, right? And it's good without doubt to acknowledge that God is the provider of all things. That's very clear from the book of Colossians. He sustains all things and he does so by giving us food there. But our passage passage says uh, that what is on the forefront of his mind, the reason why we are to pray without ceasing is not for food here, at least in this letter. That's not what he says there. It's actually for the Lord's return. This is why he brings up praying in watchfulness. So a lot of people, when we read this prayer, pray in watchfulness, we think, okay, we're supposed to be alert as we pray because, you know, sometimes we're sleepy and sometimes we don't even know what we're praying about as, as it happens to me all the time. But that's actually not what's primarily on his mind here. This watchfulness has to do mainly with the Lord's return. So prayer and watchfulness here is something that Jesus himself and other writers in scripture refer to regularly. So in Luke 21, for example, in 34 to 36, Jesus says, I'm just going to summarize. He says, watch and pray, right? Be watchful and pray that you may have strength to escape all the things that will come upon man at my return. Right? He's talking about the end times there when he's going to, when the kingdom of heaven is finally going to be established and it's all of its perfections here on earth. So it's like we pray with this eager anticipation that Christ will actually return to establish his great and marvelous kingdom. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 6, for example, Paul says, okay, given Christ is going to return again, he concludes, so then, let us not sleep like others do. But, now here's the contrast, but, or alternatively, given the return of Christ, he says, let us not sleep, but let's keep awake. Let's be sober. And there's just so many verses here that speak specifically about this watchfulness connected to the return of Jesus. And we as Christians are supposed to be awakened to this. This watchful prayer speaks of how the Christian child, how God's child, the children of light, are to remain awake and vigilant as they renounce the sleep of this world of darkness, as one author puts it, while having our minds directed toward Christ's coming, the final salvation that arrives, our hope which is consummated and where we lay hold of our object of hope. That's that watchfulness here that Paul is calling them to, this prayerful watchfulness. This here really is a prayer of the, for the coming kingdom of God as Jesus taught us how to pray. To the visiting non-Christian, if you know yourself to not follow Jesus, or maybe you're exploring Christianity, you know, we're glad you can come. If you want to talk more in depth about Christianity, I'd be happy to meet up with you during the week. I recognize that talking about the second return of Jesus might seem a little strange. But we believe that this is God's divine revelation. That these words are from God. I know that too might sound strange, but the Bible teaches that Jesus will come again. And you might have heard about this, this prayer that Jesus tells us to pray. The kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I mean, this is a real thing. 
And this is based in real history. Like, you can actually go back and look it up. Like, how were Christians actually birthed? I mean, sociologically, even if you as an academic, if you're interested in these types of things, I mean, that alone is very fascinating. I mean, why did all the Jews who were gathering on Saturday all of a sudden begin... I mean, you have to acknowledge that they were gathering on Saturday for thousands of years. And then all of a sudden, the Jews who placed their faith in Jesus start gathering, not on Saturday, but all of a sudden on Sunday. Well, why exactly did that happen? Why is there such a shift in their mind when God's word in the Old Testament lifts up a Sabbath, which is Saturday, and then all of a sudden something happens around the time of Jesus Christ where all of these Jews who put their faith in Jesus stop that and then start meeting on Saturday, right? I mean, that's just interesting. And that has to do with Jesus coming, establishing the kingdom, his own kingdom here on earth. When Jesus comes, this is, the, this is the word that he begins preaching. He says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Of course, he's talking about that because he himself, the king, who Colossians says is, the, is over all things. Let's just go back and review a little bit about who this Jesus is. If you look over at chapter 1, verse 15, I mean, just look at who this Jesus is according to his own words here in the Bible. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. It says, he, that is Jesus, is the image of... Of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. So we as Christians believe that Jesus is over all things and that everything, including yourself, were made for him, as his word says. And the reason why he comes to earth is to save those who rebelled against him. I mean, how odd is that, right? You would think that uh, people who rebel against the king, the king would automatically carry out execution for treason. But yet the king stoops down from his throne to save those and actually plead with his very rebels to lay down their arms and find forgiveness in him alone. And so he comes preaching this gospel. Repent of your sins and be saved. Be forgiven. Be at one with the king. And so Christians, we are charged with bringing that gospel of this great and marvelous king to the entire world. We don't go around conquering the world. Okay, so we're not to strap swords and glocks to our sides and go out conquering and establishing the kingdom. We are to go about preaching the word. And that's how God sees that his kingdom is established. And this is actually why Paul calls Christians to not only pray and watch for the coming kingdom, but to pray too that his kingdom would be established through the preaching of the word. So did you notice what he prays us, what he asks us to pray for as well? And it's not only watch and pray, but it's pray for us too, that's what he says. Pray for us missionaries. Pray for us who go around the world preaching the gospel. It says, at the same time, pray also for us that God would open a door so we would proclaim the mystery of Christ. 
So the content with which they are to, to, to be spreading is the mystery of Christ. That is most likely Christ himself. And we saw earlier that the mystery of Christ is, is the fact that Christ gathers uh, people from all different tribes, tongues, and nations into his people. It's not just Israel. It's everybody. And there he prays for opportunities that God himself would open a door. Uh, you guys probably you guys probably use this language. I mean, I've used this language myself. You know, the Lord opened the door. Uh, and unfortunately, it's kind of been uh, taken over, this language of God opening the door. It's been taken over by other things like, you know, Lord, open a door so that I would get a parking spot. Open a door so that I would be able to get a job. Open a door so I'd be able to get into the, the master's program that I want or the job that I want. But according to scripture, this language of God opening doors is used specifically in missionary contexts. So, for example, in 1 Corinthians 16, 9, God opens a door for effective ministry, missionary work. In Acts 14, 27, God opens a door of faith to the Gentiles so that they might believe. And so it's amazing to see what Paul actually prays the Lord would do here as he's writing in jail. It's not pray that the Lord would open the door like physically so I can get out of jail and my circumstances might be better. It's pray that I would get an opportunity, you see there, to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. This is amazing insight into the Apostle Paul, which we've already noted, but it's important to come back. This is an amazing snippet into the character of Paul. He is a driven man, a determined man. And to use biblical example, he is a called man called to fulfill a divine task. He's basically saying, I mean, just imagine, right, he's in prison writing this letter. We don't exactly know what exactly this prison thing was, uh, but nevertheless, he is in prison. Um, But you guys realize that he's saying, I know that speaking the gospel landed me in here. But yet I want you guys out there to pray that God would give me more opportunities, even though it might risk me being back in here. Or he's also so, and he's also saying, look, I might actually make my way towards the Roman Empire to be executed. Who really knows? But I might stand in front of all the major rulers and authorities in power, pray that I would have great opportunity to preach to them the gospel, even though they have the power to kill him. He doesn't talk about fear here. He doesn't talk about being led out of his circumstances in order that he might escape pain. He prays for more opportunities, the very opportunities that landed him in prison in the first place. If you're visiting with us and you're exploring Christianity, it's so obvious what Christianity is really about, isn't it? I mean, just from that little prayer right there. Pray that God will give us a door, more opportunities would happen, so that, here's the ultimate purpose... And it isn't so that the Christians would revolt against the authorities that are oppressing us. Right? That's not what he prays for. It's not pray that we would grow in numbers so that we might be able to revolt and overthrow the king. He prays, pray for more opportunities so that I might preach the gospel. Fascinating, isn't it? As we apply this to our church. This prayer here is to be offered up in light of his plan of salvation, God's great plan of salvation. 
God was determined to bring his gospel to the ends of the earth. And so what Paul is asking the Colossians to pray for him is that that very plan would be fulfilled. And so the gospel spreads to the ends of the earth in this particular way. And you know, we can be playing, praying this same prayer too. The same exact thing. And this actually is something that we have been doing in the pastoral prayer. And we pray this regularly for the persecuted church in various parts of the world. So today we did that for the church in Ethiopia. I don't know if you guys have been reading, but uh, people continue to die for their faith. Uh, more were beheaded. More were shot in that land, in that continent, in that country. And so we're praying specifically for that church. We pray that those churches in those areas would be strengthened to preach the gospel. That missionaries would be sent out even amongst this group. And people would be saved all by the grace of God. And I hope during those prayers that you guys are actually praying with me. So there's a temptation to think that just because one person is praying, leading the church in prayer, that really only one person is praying. But the whole idea of a person leading in prayer... So, for example, today it was Vinny praising God that he saves through his word. There, it, it's the whole point of that prayer as he leads us in praying is that all of us are joining with him, the person praying, in lifting up those very requests to God, whether it be a praise, whether it be a confession, which is why we use the language of we. If I stood up here and said, Lord, I pray that such and such would happen, then it really is me. But when someone prays, Lord, we pray, as in First Baptist Church prays, then all of us join together in that prayer. Sure, might we use different language than you? Of course, that's okay. Might we even pray outwardly, maybe less enthusiastically as you prefer to pray? Sure. That doesn't mean that the person is not enthusiastically praying in the spirit. But we join together in prayer at those particular times. And so you all, if you were actually praying with me, were praying for the church in Ethiopia. Other weeks, we've prayed for the churches, Churches, you know, for example, in Dubai. We've prayed for Chinese Baptist Church. We've prayed for Fellowship in the Past. we pray for Capitol Hill Baptist Church. we pray for Impact Whittier Church today. I hope you guys are praying. One way you can pray with me is by saying, now verbally saying, Amen. Right? So we don't just simply do that because it's something we're supposed to do. When you guys actually say Amen, you say, yes, truly, truly. Amen. Verily, verily. Amen. You say, it is true, and I join with you in that prayer, which is why I don't mind if you verbally, in the middle of a prayer, say vocally, amen to that. Or whether it's say, yes, Lord Jesus, or uh, something to that effect. That's actually a good thing. And it's actually a way that you can continue to engage in the prayer by saying these types of things. Amen. Which means, truly, truly, or I agree. So that's one way that we can very practically persevere in prayer, specifically for other churches in the area, other missionaries in the past. We've prayed for Robert's parents. We've prayed for others. But evangelism doesn't only happen out there, right, where the missionaries are, the cross-cultural missionaries. It actually happens here, too, locally. And uh, this brings us to point number two. It was supposed to happen in Coloss. So he says there, you too persevere in walking. He uses that language there, persevere in walking. First point, persevere in prayer. Second point, persevere in walking. 
just as prayer shows up in the opening and closing of the book, so does walking in wisdom. So in the opening, look there in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 1. Chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Paul prays that you would be filled in the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. With the intention of, here's so as to, or with the intention of, walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. So the, the knowledge and the understanding informs the walk. It allows us to walk at the appropriate pace, in the appropriate strut. But in this verse here, our walking that we're supposed to be paying attention to is before man. It's specifically before outsiders or outside those, those who are outside of the church. So in our passage today, in chapter 4, I mean, did you notice the goal of the walking? Because that determines how you walk. The goal of the walking determines the walk. Um, I'm a stroller. Kind of notorious for being a stroller. So, you know, when I used to go to the mall, I used to go to the mall all the time. Um, I like just strolling, walking very slowly. Uh, maybe because I like to people, wa- uh, people watch, not people walk, <laughs> walking people. Uh, but people watch. So I'm notorious for just strolling and enjoying my walk. Because I got nowhere to go when it comes to the mall. Because really I'll just go there to kind of walk around. Right? My goal, which is just to walk around and enjoy myself, it informs how I walk. The goal informs the walk. Uh, but so does it for the Christian too. In light of the return of Jesus Christ, the goal that is the kingdom established here on earth informs the way they walk in front of other people. Mark Dever, by the way, the guy who preached last week, uh, he is a speed walker. He is crazy when it comes to speed walking. He is notorious. You know, for example, he'd take us to Union Station in Washington, D.C., and he would walk like there is a volcano exploding behind him. He would walk so fast. It's almost like he would run and all of the interns, like six of us, would be kind of like walk, trying to keep up with him. And there, I think part of the goal was, I really need to get seated because Union Station gets really busy at lunchtime. And so the goal is, if I don't get a table, we have no place to eat. So then we're going to stand, and I don't want to stand, so I really want to get seated. So therefore, I walk very quickly, maniacally, in fact. The Christian's walk is affected by the goal. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. 1 Peter 3, verses 15 and 16. Peter says here, in relation to the goal and the walk and walking before outsiders and interacting with those outside of the church, he says, he encourages a Christian to always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. That is your hope of salvation. Always be prepared to give them, to other people, a reason for why you have that hope. But then he says, do it with gentleness and respect. So this walk is the manner with which they are to live, the manner with, with which they are to speak. There the manner is gentleness and respect, and the goal is to evangelize. The goal is salvation, right? The goal is the defense of God's truth. Same goes for Colossians. Turn back to Colossians chapter 4. Verse 
And he says, I'll repeat that in verse 5, walk in wisdom towards outsiders. So there again, he's talking about walking, living, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Christ is going to return. He is the supreme king, as it says here in in Colossians. And we as Christians ought to know how we ought to answer each person. That's the goal of salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. We exalt Jesus Christ in everything we do so that he would be supreme. Now, how that affects the walk is making the best use of your time. Having your speech be gracious. Having it be seasoned with salt. And the reason why he talks about salt is because salt had redeeming qualities. You know, it, it, would, it would cure something. It would preserve something. It had redeeming qualities. That's why he talks about it, it being salty. And of course the goal is so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. What goal is driving your walk to that? If you are a Christian. At times that that could actually be a hard question to know the goal because you can you can very much see the way you walk that's more tangible so perhaps if we ask it another way it'll be a little bit easier uh, what if you look at your walk what does that determine about what kind of goals you actually have or does your walk actually reflect all of these types of things that people need to be saved that Jesus in fact is coming. So let's think about the wisdom here. He talks about walking in a wisdom. That's a, that's, a, that's a way in which they are to walk. Is your walk in front of non-Christians a careful walk? Meaning you don't want to put a stumbling block in front of a non-Christian so that they might look at your Christ and say, Ooh, you know what? That Christ of yours, I don't think I want that. For whatever reason. Maybe you're not careful with your speech. Maybe you're given to lying. I mean, whatever sins that you struggled with before you were saved, chances are you're still struggling with those things. Maybe not so much, thank God, but you're probably still struggling with those things. So if you were an angry person and the Lord saves you out of that, you're probably still somewhat angry. But by God's grace, He's making you already are a new creation and He's sanctifying you. If you struggle with lying, then chances are you probably still struggle with being truthful and honest or clearly opening up your life. <clears throat> If you struggle with violence, you know, you're probably going to be having those violent tendencies to want to murder other people. Thank God, not as much. So we don't want to put a stumbling block in front of other people. And we want to be watchful of the ways in which we live, the ways in which we uh, live out our lives in front of other people, whether it be how one dresses, how many drinks you have after dinner. Even how much you eat. I mean, something as little as that. I mean, we've known people who... I have known people who, in the midst of a difficult situation, their temptation is to go to, let's say, you know, a gallon of Ben and Jerry's ice cream and just down the whole entire thing. I mean, that in very many ways, it might seem silly, but it is a reality that that could be a functional idol. Or work, even, could be a functional idol. So, the ways in which you live. Do you commend your supreme savior. That he demands your allegiance in every single aspect of your life. Are you walking in wisdom in front of those outside? Now we can move on to time. How about the time you spend with your friends and family who don't believe? How do you approach it? 
Or do you approach it as if, as if you need to exploit the time that you actually need to use the time wisely, given that we don't have very much? Are you making sure that you actually get to the things of greatest importance? Talking about the supreme things, that is Christ, His church, salvation. Now this doesn't mean that you cannot talk about other things like work, or career, or aspirations, or children, vacations, the game, or your hobbies. So for example, we've been uh, you know, fixing up this house, the house that my dad lives in right now. And we got a painter who comes by, and he is in love with his BMW. The thing is like 1990, 1980-something, but he's dropping a massive engine in there, and the thing is, you know, it's like, it's like the AMG of Mercedes, the equivalent of the BMW, whatever that is. So this thing is a racing machine. And he says that one of the, the former Temptations owned the thing. And it's incredibly valuable, and, and he will happily talk about uh, his BMW. He's shown pictures to me, shown pictures to my dad on multiple occasions. He loves fishing, too. So uh, recently he went out fishing, and uh, he's a big fishing fanatic. He has multiple sets, and these things cost like $1,000 each in terms of their rods and whatever. You know, I don't know anything about fishing. Um, and he, he made it really clear. He says, look, when the fish are biting, I do not work. Everything stops so that I can go out get go fishing. And he went out recently, and he caught like four yellowtail and a bunch of other things, and I enjoyed some of those spoils. Um but I'm happy to talk about his BMW. I'm happy to talk about fishing with the guy because he likes those things. It's good to talk about those things. But imagine what it would be like if I just shut my mouth and never talked about who I think or what I think is supreme. He might think a BMW is supreme. Deep sea fishing, fishing for a fresh yellowtail is supreme. But what does it say about Jesus? Well, the Bible clearly says it's supreme. And I think, I agree that he's supreme. But yet I never really get around to talking about it. Maybe I assume that I have more time. Maybe I assume that at some time, at just the right time, I might get to a gospel conversation. How much time do you assume you have? Or how much time do you assume your neighbors have? I've been reminded of death recently. A day after the installation service uh, was the day that my mother passed away. So I'm thinking about these types of things more. All the things maybe I could have said. All the things maybe I should have said. All the things I shouldn't have said. And I know that those were a lot. Also thinking about death because my friend, who is a pastor, his name is John Onwuchekwa. We've prayed for him here at this church. Um, his brother just passed away. 37 years old, I think, if I remember correctly. Sam Onwuchekwa. He was a pastor. Is a was a pastor at a church in Memphis. He is survived by his wife, his two little children, both probably under four years old. Imagine what it would be like, possibly, if you if you were him. All the things you wish you would have said to your Christian wife, your spouse. All the things you wish you would have said to your children. I imagine if I was, if I knew that I was going to lose my life, that I would exploit the time, that I would use it wisely, lifting up the one who is supreme, expressing my love appropriately, lavishing my love towards other people. 
talking to them about how Jesus Christ can actually save. One of my friends, John Bryson, this is what he wrote in light of Sam's death. John is, is his boss, was his boss. He says, none of us can add days to our lives. The most we can do is be faithful with the days God gives us. Are you guys being faithful with the days God gives you? And the time that God gives you? Don't assume that you have more time. But exploit the time for God's sake. That's time. We can move on to something like speech. How's your speech? You know, these are like the factory settings for the Christian. Once you acknowledge that Christ is supreme, that he reigns over all, that he has reconciled us, he's brought us into his family, he's forgiven us of our sin, automatically the Spirit sort of sets us with these precepts. Right? This is, right? The the goal affects the walk. The goal, Christ is supreme in all things. He's going to establish his kingdom here on earth. And the factory settings or our walk is gentleness and a salted conversation. The Christian is supposed to have salted speech, possessing some redeeming qualities. Do you speak in gentleness and respect to those who are outsiders? I mean, we as Christians should be the most gentle and the most gracious, actually, in terms of our speech, because we know that we didn't do anything to earn salvation. We know that the only way that we can become a Christian, that we can confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, is through the Spirit, Paul said. These things are spiritual things that God the Father reveals to us. And so Jesus teaches Peter that lesson when he says, who do you say that I am? And he says, Jesus Christ. He says, blessed are you because flesh hasn't revealed this to you, but God the Father has revealed this to you. And so when we interact with others, even if they don't like or even hate what we have to say, yet we still should be gentle and respectful. Respectful to other people who are men and women who are made in the image of God. But if we must disagree, still we must do so with gentleness and respect. Having a salted conversation amongst the people that God brings across our path. You know, if you're like me, there are times when the desire to see people saved, so the goal really does affect the walk in, or in terms of a speech. The, God's truth protected informs the way in which we carry ourselves. And that sometimes determines how I act, oftentimes it does. But also, if you're like me, you know too that sometimes we lose sight of the goal. And our walk begins to look kind of sloppy, or like we are having a, a drunken walk, so to speak. Now let me encourage you, if you know yourself to be like me, if you know that you're going to be spending time with friends and family who don't believe, let me encourage you to make this verse your prayer. Paul's verse, when he says, pray for me that I might have the opportunity to declare the mystery of Christ. And how, we, how is it that we ought to speak there in verse 4? That I might make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Pray that Christ would reign supreme in your life and these goals and the fact that he returns and the fact that he changes, let that affect the ways in which you carry yourself in your relationships with those who don't believe. So as we continue in terms of the main points, he encourages us to persevere in prayer, persevere in walking. He also encourages us to persevere in supporting. Persevere in supporting. This is in the final verses here, 7 to 18. 
Now, this point is more implicit than explicit, and we learn about that. We learn about the fact that we are supposed to be persevering in supporting because of what's really going on in verses seventeen, uh, seven to eighteen. I mean, here Paul lists seven people who kind of just wanted to say hi to the Colossian church. I mean, imagine what's going on, right? Paul's in jail. He's writing his letter. And all these people maybe are popping in and saying hi to Paul. They they see him writing this letter to the Colossians. And they too are saying, oh, tell them I say hi too. You tell them I say hi too. Let them know that I'm praying for them. So here he is in jail. He's just listing these seven people's names. This guy says hello. This guy over here says hello. This guy here, I'm sending him to you because he is a beloved worker for you. So here he's writing to the church. He's encouraging them. This is a similar dynamic uh, that happens when we hear that uh, Capitol Hill Baptist Church, Mark Dever and the staff there, they pray through their membership directory. Uh, And I know that Mark does, and I know many of the staff do, and I know many of the congregation uh, do as well. But they pray for me, they pray for Jeremy, they pray for First Baptist Church regularly. These are people that you haven't even met, some of you have not even met them at least. So this is what's going on here. Paul wants to know, wants the Colossian Christians to know without a doubt that there are people praying for them and laboring for them, for their faith, for their strength, for that, so that they would be established in the faith before Jesus Christ. Now, in terms of history, uh, a number of these names show up in the book of Acts. Many of these folks were Paul's travel companions on his missionary journeys. The first two mentioned there, Tychicus and Onesimus, They were sent back to the Colossian church um, to give them an update on what was going on with Paul and his companions and the spread of the gospel. And it seems that they were the ones to bring back the physical letter of or to the Colossians as well as the letter of Philemon. Philemon and Onesimus. Onesimus was a slave of Philemon who had run away as a non-Christian. Onesimus meets Paul. He gets converted. And then Paul sends him back. So they're arriving to the church at Coloss with these letters here in hand. Now there's so many things we could talk about here, you know, in 7 to 18. We could talk about the people. We could talk in depth about how they are to read the letter to all the different churches in the surrounding area. I mean, that is hugely significant. So Paul wrote this letter and then he said, look, I want you to read it to all the other churches. Uh, But I want to draw our attention to the people that Paul draws our attention to. He highlights certain things for the Colossian church. Namely, these things are people. These people are supporting the Colossian church. And then uh, we want to try and follow in their footsteps. So first he does that with a guy named Tychicus. Tychicus. And did you notice there the threefold description of Tychicus? It's so encouraging here to read this about him. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a, number one, a beloved brother. And number two, a faithful minister. And then number three, a fellow servant in the Lord. I mean, just stop for a second, right? And you think about Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith. And how we too, to some degree, uh, are also amidst this hall of faith too, as those who believe and trust in Jesus Christ. Tychicus stands with them. We hardly know anything about this guy. But yet we know, I mean, Tychicus has a legacy even today in the 21st century among, amidst First Baptist Church because he has these qualities. He is a faithful, or he is a beloved brother. 
is a faithful minister and faithful servant in the Lord. So we want to be little Tychicuses. Maybe we don't want his name. But we nevertheless want these character qualities if you are a believer. We should be aiming for these things. So I wonder if, if, if you ask the people around you if they would be able to recommend you like Paul recommends Tychicus. That's how you might know if you are actually persevering in supporting the church. If you are a beloved brother. I mean, what does it mean to be beloved? It's not entirely clear how exactly one earns this type of title or how one is granted this type of title. But what is clear is that it is hard for you, whether you be a brother or sister, to become a beloved brother or sister if you're always on the periphery. How exactly do you become a beloved brother? How do you endear yourselves to people if you're always on the periphery? If you aren't doing good, spiritual good to other people. If you are never close to the people. If you don't open yourself up to the people. You, you become a beloved brother, a beloved sister to the people because you are down to help. Because you are open and honest and teachable and kind and gentle and helpful. I mean, do these things mark you? So that you would be known as a beloved brother. A beloved sister to the church. How about a faithful minister? Tychicus, you know, again, he shows up in Acts chapter 20. He shows up in Colossians. He shows up in Ephesians. He shows up in 1 Timothy and Titus. At least uh, his name is mentioned in these places. I mean, Paul clearly found him faithful enough to entrust to him various tasks. He, he, went, he was sent out on a missionary journey himself, if I remember correctly. And so he is here here in Colossians, he sent out to establish the church and to help. How is your faithfulness? Are you a reliable man, a reliable woman? Not only in tasks, but also in sharing the gospel? Are you able to handle the word? So that's what would make you faithful. You're faithful to the gospel that you minister. Are you, are you uh, faithful or competent to... Help someone walk through a book of the Bible and then apply it to your lives. And if not, that's okay. You know, God finds us in all these different places, but we are supposed to be moving towards maturity so that we could become faithful ministers of the gospel, as we all have a ministry of reconciliation. How about a fellow slave, a servant of Christ? Paul moves on here. This is Tychicus' title. Is Christ who you live for and who you give your life to, right? If he is supreme... Is that actually making itself known in the ways in which you serve or the things in which you serve, the people whom you serve? Are you serving Jesus Christ? Are you a fellow slave to this Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Let's go to the next name here. He mentions a man named Epaphras. Epaphras, again, was the guy who had left the Colossian church to go and meet Paul. And most likely he got Paul's opinions, wisdom, and eventually Epaphras is going to come back. Paul says, look, he is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus. He greets you. And then he goes on and says, he is always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. With this goal, right, the goal informs the walk, the goal informs the life, the goal is that you may stand mature and fully assured in all of the will of God. 
And so he prays for the church. That he always struggles on behalf of his, in his prayers. He's agonizing. That's the word here for struggle. He's agonizing for the church that they might stand and mature. Now, in order to even pray these types of prayers, right, this requires a desire, a certain type of desire. This requires a supreme desire to see your brothers and sisters uh, stand mature and fully assured in the will of God, secure in their faith. But let's be honest. Church, Christians. Maybe you might know people around here and the greatest thing you might want for them is that they might be less weird. That they might be more normal. That they might be a little less quirky. And that's really like a thing that you want. Maybe, sadly, even a thing that comes up in conversation with your friends. But here, you look at the desire that Epaphras has. That Paul can commend to the brothers and sisters in the Colossian church. He says, look at this brother. He agonizes for you. That you may stand firm, secure in the will of God. He has the same desires of God. And the desires of God become Epaphras' desires for God's people. Not only does it require a desire, it requires a love. To pray like this it means that we want to see the people protected. Not wandering away from the faith. Not preyed upon. And then maybe when they begin to wander... Do you have a certain love, like Tychicus, like Epaphras, where you would be dispatched by others, by leaders, to aid in the care of your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, that they might stand mature? Also requires a knowledge, right? How do you pray that someone would stand mature, fully assured in the will of God, if you don't know the will of God? So here, with Christ reigning supreme, Paul encourages the church... See that you know the will of God, the will of Christ, and that you might pray that others would do so as well. Friends, thank God God has given us each other. This new life that we have as we are alive in Jesus Christ, as we are united with him in his death, as he paid for sins, so we don't have to, because we are united to him in his death. And as he gets up from the grave, so we are united to him in his resurrection, and we have new life. But that life necessarily involves other people. Just like as was prayed earlier, as was mentioned earlier, as we sung, Oh Church Arise, talking about people, a group. And he's giving us marching orders that you might fight on the front lines of each other's battles through prayer. Do you find yourself fighting on the front lines of your brother and sister's battles? Or are the things that you concern yourself with, really, they just concern yourself and not really other people? Paul here encourages us, as we have new life, to join together in praying for one another, in walking with one another, and then here, in supporting one another. If you don't find yourselves on the front lines of anyone else's battles, there could be a lot of different reasons for that. Perhaps you really don't care. Perhaps you've never really been taught to. Perhaps you're growing in these types of things. Pray that you would be more like Tychicus. Pray that Epaphras would really be your example. That you would walk in those same footsteps. So that, if need be, if any brother or sister already need help, then your small group leader, your discipler could say, could you please, brother or sister, go and care for that person? 
and agonize for them in your prayers. Perhaps you need to be more like Paul who is making his own requests known. He certainly needed help. He despairs unto life in certain passages and he's making his requests known with the goal of Jesus' kingdom needing to be established here on earth. And so he pleads with the Colossian church, join with me and join with one another. Life in Christ is a persevering life. And as we have now finished off the series, we are reminded to persevere in faith, in praying, in walking, and in supporting. All with the supremacy of Christ being our great and marvelous goal. So you have, just as you have received him, Paul says, so walk worthy of his name. But remember that all of this persevering falls underneath lifting up the glory of the Lord. It's not persevering as if something you grit your teeth and sort of trudge through. It's really desiring to see Christ magnified here in the life of this church and in the lives of our brothers and sisters. We have new life in the fullness of Christ. Indeed, the fullness of life in the fullness of Christ. If you're visiting with us today and you know this to not be the case with you, fullness of life, Jesus Christ calls and he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. That's life supreme in a supreme Christ. Free from your nagging guilt. Free from your nagging shame. Jesus has come. Repent and believe. And you will be saved. No doubt about it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you as our supreme Christ. We acknowledge that you are before all things. All things are made through you and all things have been made for you. Lord, we recognize that our church, First Baptist Church, has been made for you as you have united us through your own blood and saved us. You've reconciled us to the Father where once we were far off under condemnation, slaves to the flesh. Lord, now we are slaves to a marvelous God. Lord, we ask that you, by your Spirit, would help us set our minds on things above, where Christ is, seated at your throne. Lord, we pray that you would make us a careful people, a prayerful people, and a supporting people. Do this by your Spirit, we pray. In your name we ask. Amen. Amen.